The documentary Through the Night is perfectly timed for this moment when we're all thinking more deeply about caretakers. I speak with the director, Lloyda Limball. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Lloyda Limball has been active for many years behind the scenes at Firelight Media in Harlem. The founders of Firelight, Stanley Nelson and Marcia Smith, expanded from making their own films on black history to start a documentary lab that mentors emerging filmmakers of color. In the past 12 years, over 120 filmmakers have gone through the lab, including previous guests on this podcast, Don Porter, Jatavia Gary, and Yoruba Richin. Lloyda was instrumental in the lab's growth. She held that full-time job on top of being a single mother. It meant putting her own filmmaking on hold for several years. Finally, she decided she couldn't put it off any longer. She called her production company Third Shift Media as she embarked on making Through the Night. The film looks at a 24-hour childcare business called Dee's Tots, run by Dolores and Patrick Hogan, out of their home in New Rochelle, a suburb of New York City. They cater to parents holding down jobs in roles like health care and food supply. We call these jobs essential, but the U.S. hasn't made it essential to provide them with child care. Here's Dolores, also known as Nunu. I have all different types of families in my daycare. I have some that comes in at 6 o'clock in the morning that works to 8.30 at night. I have some that comes from 3.30 to 12.30 at night. I have some that comes in overnight. I see a lot of parents come in and break down. They don't want to do this, but they need to go out and work and pay their bills and take care of their family. All right, I'll see you later. All right, baby, have a good day. Be careful. This is the way the world is set up at this point. That last line really stood out to me in 2020. This is the way the world is set up at this point. It reminds us that we could set up the world differently. Through the Night won a special jury prize at the Doc NYC Festival for paying attention, in the words of the jurors, to the ethics of care. I started by asking Lloyda how she first got interested in documentary film. I was really young, actually. I was in my late teens, and I was a member of a youth organizing program in the South Bronx at the Point. And one of the activities that they did with us in that program was they would do movie nights. Uh, And so for a few weeks in a row, they screened Eyes on the Prize for us. Uh, And I remember watching, you know, and taking in all of these stories and these images and feeling like, you know, sort of having a huge aha moment, uh, you know, in terms of understanding why so many things were they, the way they were in my neighborhood, in my community, but things that up until that point, nobody had really like ever stopped to explain to me, you know, but as a young person, you're seeing things happen and you're questioning things, right? And you're thinking about your environment. And Eyes on the Prize was that moment, right, for me of understanding like, oh, there's this history and this place 
Um, because, you know, you got to remember my family is not from the United States, right? My family is from the Dominican Republic. Uh, my mother raised us like not being fluent in English. So there was a lot about U.S. history that I didn't know and certainly was not taught in school. But, you know, there were experiences of racism and violence that I was living through, uh, you know, as a black person in New York City, but I had no real context. And having that experience, I, re I remember thinking this was, I was like 16 or 17. I was like, wow, this is what films can do. Uh, you know, and I think that would probably be, be like the earliest moment that I can recall of me being interested in documentary filmmaking. Uh, and after that moment, there were several others, but that's probably the earliest one. The first documentary that Lloyda made is called Estillo Hip Hop. She worked with co-director V Bravo to profile hip hop artists in Brazil, Cuba, and Chile. It took them eight years and was broadcast on PBS in 2009. As Lloyda was finishing that, she was looking for a job with more stability and health care. She heard about an opening with Stanley Nelson and Firelight Media. Around that same time, a friend who had been working at Firelight mentioned, oh, you know, this place, Firelight, they're looking for an office manager. Um, you know, I know you're looking for work. They make documentary films. You know, this might be a good fit. And, you know, sure enough, I already knew Stanley's work. I had watched The Murder of Emmett Till, um, you know, in Jonestown, I believe. So I was like, that would be amazing to work there because these are documentary filmmakers, right, that make really important work. And, uh, and so I applied. I got the job. And that's, you know, between Estilo Hip Hop and Through the Night, I've been at Firelight Media. <laughs> When you joined Firelight Media, it's a different organization than it is uh, today. Can you talk about, you know, what it was like when you joined and what were some of the pivotal experiences in, in its growth? Yeah, sure. It was very, very different than it is today. Uh, when I joined, um, Marsha and Stanley, had the co-founders of Firelight, had just... Um, returned to New York after spending some time in California and having the organization based uh, in the Bay Area. And Marsha had actually left um, to go back into the world of philanthropy. So when I got there, you know, it was sort of Stanley was the only uh, full-time staff member and then me. Uh, and so, you know, as such, we did all the all the things, we wore all the hats between the two of us, and, and we sort of joke um, that his father, Dr. Nelson, was like the third honorary member because we were in a small office in the front you know, of the first floor, and his dad was uh, living in the back of the first floor. And so you know, we <laughs> saw him every day, and he it was like me, Stanley, and Dr. Nelson uh, were, were the firelight staff. Um, and Orchid, uh, Dr. Nelson's caretaker, who was uh, an amazing person and had a, a very huge presence uh, around the office in those days. Um, and, you know, Stanley at that time, when I joined, he was working on Freedom Riders. Uh, and so there was that one team in the office. And then Mabel Haddock, uh, who, was the found, who is the founder of uh, Black Public Media, had also just recently joined to run uh, what was then called the Producers Lab and is now the Documentary Lab. 
Uh, and so that's the, that was the configuration, um, you know, pretty much at that time, much smaller than we are today, both in terms of staff and in terms of programs. Um, but also Stanley at that point was making one film at a time, uh, which is no longer the case. He's making lots of films yeah. at one time now. Uh, so, yeah, lots, of, lots has changed in, in these last 11 years. So over the course of those 11 years, you became really integral to, uh, from my eyes anyways, to building out the producer's lab and helping other filmmakers get their films made. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about that experience and you know how, what you were thinking about your own career. You're, here you are helping other filmmakers get their films made the years are going by since uh, your uh, first film uh, came out. Um, how did that work? Yeah, um, it, lots, so, so many things there. I remember when um, Mabel, uh, you know, sort of transitioned out of the organization and Marsha turned to me and said, you know, well, you're, you're going to have to do the producer's lab now, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I kind of looked at her and said, and I said, well, I, I can't really because like I've only made one film. It wasn't like some sort of huge smashing success. I mean, I, I like the film. I stand by it still today and you know, I'm proud of it. But, you know, I, I just felt like I didn't have any more experience than the fellows themselves. And so I felt very ill equipped to sort of be leading that kind of program. Uh, but I, you know, I, I stepped into it because I, I, um, I really believed in the work, uh, and I myself knew the the sort of the difference that good mentorship, sustained mentorship, could make, you know, in the career and in the filmmaking process of of an emerging filmmaker. On Estilo Hip Hop, we were fortunate to have Phil Bertelson as a mentor, and also Sabine Hoffman. Uh, and their mentorship was like nothing short of critical. Uh, and so I had just come off of that experience myself, and I was like, well, I know what, men what good sustained mentorship can do, so I'll, we'll just figure this out, you know. Um, and as, as we went along, I think it's, it's one of the things that has become really integral to our work is just really listening. Um, so we devise and design our programs um, just through a, a listening to what folks are saying that they need or they want, you know, and trying to remain nimble enough to be able to be responsive. Uh, and in terms of my own career, I certainly was thinking along the way, like, gosh, you know, like, I, am I ever going to be able to make another film myself, you know, uh, in that time period? You know, I, 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 when I first started at Firelight, I was already married, right? Yes, I was married, I didn't have children, but over the course of the next few years, I had my first child, then I had my second child, then I got divorced. You know, the work at Firelight was expanding, my role was increasing, my responsibility was increasing. So, you know, it was like, I have a more demanding job, I now have two young children, I am now divorced. I don't really think I'm ever going to make another film again because there's no time. And I remember sitting, you know, at, at the retreats and listening to the presentations and things like that. And at one retreat, I kind of 
shared my 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 desperate like you know conclusion that I was never gonna be able to make another film with Maria Agui Carter, who was a presenter at this particular retreat. And she very kind of calmly looked at me and said, take a deep breath. She was like, you'll be able to make more films. It's just gonna take you more time. You know, as a mother, it's just gonna take you more time and, and your process and your path is gonna look different than a lot of other people's paths look like, right? but you'll be able to make more films. I don't even know if she remembers that she said that to me, but it's something that I've held on to over these years. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a real question for me, uh, you know, and, and a fear. I, you know, I was very fearful that I wouldn't be able to make films again. Well, I think there's a process when you're around a lot of other filmmakers and you, you see how hard the process is and you see, you see how hard people work and make films that don't turn out that well. They're working just as hard as the people yeah. who make films that do turn out uh, well. And it can become, you know, more intimidating. I mean, I know when I made my first film, the biggest asset I had was naivete. Um, <laughs> that I, you know, I, I didn't know you know, what the obstacles were uh, ahead of me. Um, and that helped. <laughs> and, you know, after you do know what the obstacles are and you're constantly immersed in watching other people struggle, I think it's easy to uh, internalize that. I mean, that can be something that uh, holds you back. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that was part of it. I would even look at Stanley, you know, and his teams and the way that they were working. And I'd be like, I'd say to myself, there's no way that I can carve out these kinds of hours to work on a film while parenting and, and working full time, you know? And so definitely like watching other people's process made me be like, yeah, I can't, I don't have the, the bandwidth, you know, for, for all of this. Um, and I think also for me, there was a, a, a part of it that I think I, I got really, I became very comfortable at advocating for other filmmakers. And that, that somehow, that also started to me to feel like perhaps um, more important, you know, than me pursuing my own work um, because I, I, I just believe in the importance of it so much. And so I would sort of say to myself, like, you're not making films, but you're doing really meaningful work. This work is perhaps even more meaningful, you know, than you trying to drive yourself crazy making another film, you know. Uh, and also the, my, my, the experience working on my own film, my first film, you know, it was hard. And I still had that <laughs> that I was processing, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there was like many reasons to think that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, this is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Documentary filmmaking yeah. is not <laughs> that. So, so how did you overcome all those things and get started on Through the Night? I think with Through the Night, you know, when, when I first learned about the daycare in the film, I just, it, it kind of gripped me. Uh, in, in a way that was unshakable, um, because I think it, it just spoke so deeply to m my own experiences, my mother's experiences of, 
you know, working single mothers, working low wage jobs, just this world that is literally my most immediate world. Um, reading that first article, I was, it just kind of like took me down this very visceral trip down memory lane. Uh, and, um, you know, I, it took me two years between reading the article and first learning about this particular daycare that, that's featured in the film. Uh, and then it would be two years later that I would finally reach out to the to the folks in the film. I mean, that, that's interesting to me. I, I guess I, I wasn't sure how you first learned about Dolores and Patrick uh, Hogan. In some ways, their experience, you know, feels unique to them and, you know, what a kind of loving, supportive atmosphere you've captured uh, in the film. On the other hand, they must be one of thousands of uh, daycare centers in the country or even in the tri-state area um, that if you wanted to make a film about daycare that you could have uh, chosen from. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, you know, what it was about that mm -hmm. particular place mm -hmm. that um, that made you focus there, especially there people doing daycare closer to your home in the Bronx. This yeah. is a um, place not too far, but uh, but not in the not an urban uh, mm -hmm. uh, setting. Yeah, and that, this is a great question because so I read the article and I reached out to um, the one of the people who had worked on the piece uh, because I knew her uh, and I asked if she would make an introduction. And she declined to do so, uh, and and then I sort of said, okay, well, oh well, I tried, you know, and sort of let it go. But then I would still be thinking about this idea and how amazing it would be to make a film, you know, about this this community, this world, this universe. Um, and I actually did talk to my own childcare provider to ask if she knew of providers who uh, worked non-standard hours or who worked overnight hours and this sort of thing. And the, I think the piece about the overnight really caught me because my mother worked uh, the overnight shift while she was raising us. Uh, and so I just remember there being like an added layer of challenges, you know, with um, finding care with that type of schedule and also like an added layer of stigma and judgment uh, you know, around the idea that your children are being cared for by others uh, through the night. Uh, and so that that had really sort of stayed with me. And I did get names of other daycare centers, um, some in the Bronx, some in, uh, in Harlem. I actually met with a few of them, but none of them spoke to me the way that the, the, the voices, you know, that I kind of imagined in reading the article spoke to me. And, and part of the reason I think that particular, uh, this particular daycare was the one that I was so intent on um, documenting was because in the article, I noticed that there was a kind of a range of uh, professions and socioeconomic backgrounds, right, that it's a, a very kind of diverse community uh, in, in many different kinds of ways, right? Like in terms of family composition, racial and ethnic backgrounds, professions, right? All, all of these things, which for me felt important because one, that's what I know, you know, communities of colors, communities of color to be like, you know, oftentimes people talk about like low income communities and that 
it's like one picture that people have in their minds. Um, you know, but the reality is that there's a pretty broad, you know, spectrum of people that live in the South Bronx, right? Um, and, and I grew up with these folks. Um, and so that was something that felt like a, a kind of a complexity and a, a sort of a layer that felt important for me. Uh, and then also because I, I sort of wanted to make the point with this film, I, I wanted to make sort of the point of how um, how I'm trying to find like the right word, you know, not just cruel, but just um, how the system that we have around work and care does not work for anyone. Um, and so, yes, folks of color and low-income communities are certainly disproportionately impacted by these things, but at the end of the day, this doesn't work for anybody. And so I wanted there to be a diversity, right, of experiences in the film. So you have Shinona, uh, who's a pediatric ER nurse, you know, that is not a low-wage job, who is in the same community with Marisol, who is working three low-wage jobs, you know, and that, again, that is very much the reality that I've known growing up in our, in our communities. Um, and so that was the thing, I think, that made these talks so special to me, um, uh, you know, and then I, when, once I got there and got to know them, you know, then it's like Nuno and Patrick emerge as, as these amazing, you know, charismatic sort of perfect protagonists. I wonder if I could ask you to pick a scene in the film that sort of embodies what you were trying to do in this film. There's a scene where the children are getting ready to go to sleep and um, they're sort of playing around, they're joking, Patrick is like, you know, messing around with them, which he does all the time, you know, like just joking, and he has them in stitches. They're like, you know, dying of laughter. I don't even know what you said. I don't even know what you just said. Telephone, telephone, say by the bell. And they're getting ready for bed, and they're, you know, one of the mothers calls. Hi, mommy. To check in and say goodnight and what did you have for dinner and this sort of thing. Uh, and she does, they have the call and then the children kind of get into a, a conversation with each other about their mother's schedules and the debate becomes, do their mothers need sleep or not? He needs to get some rest, though. Your mom got to get some rest because your mom be working at nighttime, and then she get off of work at the morning. First, she drives me off at school. Then she takes no to school. Then she goes back. Sometimes she doesn't need to sleep. She doesn't need to rest if she don't feel like it. While Nunu is sort of off camera cleaning something, uh, you know, and she overhears one of the little girls asking her mother, her mother about, you know, shortness of breath. And she knows that this little girl has asthma. She's off camera. She's like totally doing something else, but she's paint like ever mindful of everything that's happening with her peripheral vision, um, you know, and she herself is like achy, you know, uh, but then like, you know, going asking the little girl to go check if she has her asthma pump in her bag overnight and, just the sort of the the that scene for me really encapsulated um, all the le all the layers of this community, right? It's the mom who is parenting 
off-site because she is parenting, right? She is calling to check in and she's having a conversation with her daughter about what shortness of breath means, right? Like she's, this is parenting that's happening just in a different way. The babies are happy, they're, you know, joking, but they're also like in community and conversation with each other. You know, Nunu is like mindful and catching things that she doesn't even like have her full eye on, but still, you know, kind of able to catch it. And then, you know, the, the kind of the night they get tucked in and, you know, the night settles down. Um, and it's just all these kind of layers, right? And all the different players of this ecosystem, uh, which is, I think, what we were trying to do with the film. You know, I, we, we talked a lot, Malika Zuhali Waral, uh, our editor, and Ose said, our composer, we, we ended up kind of creating this sort of triangle metaphor uh, to identify what the tone and the mood of each um, cue should be for different scenes. And what we realized in doing that was that every scene had sort of at least three different emotions or tones or moods, right, that we were trying to evoke that were often in tension with each other, right? So there's like love and tenderness, but there's nostalgia, there's some sadness, right? or there's joy, but there's also some exhaustion and defeat or, you know, any number of things, right? Um, and that every scene, you know, we were trying to make sure had that kind of complexity of or th that those layers um, so that nothing is ever just fully, you know, triumphant, uh, but also nothing is ever just like a sob story. It's like the complexity of the everyday uh, you know, as, as working parents, right? And as working people. Um, and, and I think that really does encapsulate a lot of what I was trying to do with the film, uh, was to pack all that stuff in, but still somehow be subtle about it. <laughs> that was also yeah, the goal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think a strength of the film is its subtlety and, uh, you know, in a way kind of like slowing us down to pay attention to the deep, the kind of details that you just described it's um there aren't you know big dramatic you know plot lines uh, uh going on it's not like they're going to close down the child care you know will they make it um uh kind of uh action you must be conscious of uh is is someone who works with a lot of filmmakers about the you know the the, the general tendencies that, you know, that even sometimes the documentary marketplace is, you know, pushing mm -hmm. people to, um, towards, um, I wonder if you felt like you were consciously resisting that. Yes, uh, we were very conscious of it, uh, you know, and there was, again, a, a, a manifesto of sorts that we wanted to make without making it, <laughs> uh, which is around the idea that um, our lives as people of color are worthy of um, just a slow and patient and curious gaze and lens that is looking at just the everyday um, to, to sort of stand in opposition to this other track of you know, thinking and conversations in the U.S. where many documentary films about communities of color are about 
the many violences that we experience, um, you know, and which are, it's important, like those stories are important. I'm certainly not saying that they are not, but I think when you have a kind of a canon that is really lopsided with those kinds of stories and nothing to balance, or very little, I should say, to balance it out, um, that further contributes, you know, to the dehumanization, right? That we all become conditioned to only being able to see black and brown bodies in certain ways. Um, and so just kind of sitting, right? That you, what you said, like wanting to slow everyone down enough to just kind of sit and, and watch children playing, you know, a hand clapping game or to watch Nunu wiping down a counter or, you know, to watch one little kid tie another kid's shoelaces. Like, this is everyday life. And, again, we face a lot of oppression, but we are also living our lives. And I think it's important for us and for everyone to see us living, right? Um, and so that was something that we were really conscious about. I will say I was worried about, I was worried that, you know, as I, as I increasingly felt myself leaning towards something that was very kind of subtle uh, and understated in some ways, I was worried that in the marketplace, um, it, it wouldn't be legible or it wouldn't like register for anyone um, because it's not splashy. It's not, you know, there aren't the super dramatic tw plot twists and turns, you know. It is meditative and, you know, just kind of patient, right? Um, which isn't necessarily how I would characterize American culture <laughs> overall. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was worried, I, I, you, know, you know, if I'm honest about whether the film would register really for anyone, um, if there was really a place um, in any given, you know, cycle of, of releases for, for a film like this. But, you know, we would have those conversations and that would just almost make us, like, more interested in doing that and, you know, just being like, well, it'll land for whoever it lands with. But this is really what, what you know, especially Malika and I, who, who worked together from the very first shoot. Um, so Malika and I were together the whole four years of making the film. You know, the more we talked about it and we kind of shared our concerns uh the more that we became like convinced that this was what we wanted to do i i heard you talk in another interview about the way that you brought a kind of uh practice of of mothering into the filmmaking uh mm -hmm. process i wonder if you can talk about uh the way you and Malika and, and your other uh, team members nurtured this film the way, you know, the way caretakers nurture. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, that probably has been, was one of the biggest epiphanies that I had while working on this film. I, I went into the film very concerned and apprehensive about how, about like striking a balance between parenting working full-time and making a film, right? Um, so I was scared, <laughs> honestly, very scared. Uh, and, and really scared of failing, scared of squandering people's goodwill, you know, squandering relationships. Um, 
And, uh, and the only framework that I had, and I think this is part of the reason that I was so scared f for motherhood and as it relates to having a, an artistic or a creative practice was the framework that tells you that, you know, once you have kids, like you kind of can't <laughs> have a creative practice like that. That was in my head, right? Like, although I know women who certainly, you know, have our mothers or whatever, that that framework is very prevalent in, in our society. And I think I had really internalized it. And so I was very worried about like going up against that, you know, and, and failing. And the epiphany for me, and this, the one of the, I've had many, but one of the biggest ones was that like, actually there was, I realized there was a really sort of symbiotic relationship between for me, the, the muscles that I use in my everyday mothering, right? Particularly around like listening, around communicating, around intention, right? Um, around power dynamics that like when I was in a good flow at home, I could literally translate those same muscles over to the creative process and to production. Uh, which I think is, there is a way in which children, like what they want from you or what they need from you is you in your sort of plainest, most authentic way. Like they want you, your presence, your, your full presence with whatever flaws or whatever you have, you know, if you're their parent, that's what they want. And I think that for me, the creative process, that's what it wants of me too, is me uh, with all my stuff, but for me to show up sort of fully present, you know? And, and so there was just this symbiosis, you know, that I, I saw happening and, and sometimes vice versa, you know, that something, if I had some sort of breakthrough or I, you know, I strengthened a muscle on a shoot, I could then somehow bring that home, you know, and it could apply in the midst of the next like argument that I was having with my eight-year-old about whatever it was, <laughs> you know? Um, and that ultimately like realizing like, yes, you know, I maybe didn't get the balance right all the time, I'm sure, um, but that I am enough for my children. I am actually like what my children need most and I'm enough and I was enough for this film, you know? Um, and, and so I think that's like one of the biggest sorts of epiphanies that I, you know, I hope serves me moving forward because I certainly want to make more films. Um, and I think it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's one that I, I think it's important to share because I do think that so many uh, mothers do battle with this question of how to pursue their passions in light of their responsibilities, right? I want to thank Lloyda Limbaugh for speaking with me. Her new film, Through the Night, has been playing in virtual cinemas and has qualified for the Oscars. It will be broadcast on the POV series next spring. We'll be back with more pure nonfiction in the new year. 
Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.